Hello, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page and become a supporter. So earlier this year, I thought of discussing the history of Tulsa because this year is the 100th anniversary of the infamous Tulsa Race Massacre, one of the biggest episodes of civil violence in American history and which was much discussed in the media. So now that the year is running out, I'm going to fit it in before the end of December. And I want to talk about the history of Tulsa broadly from its creation to recent times because this discussion about the massacre that took place there in 1921 leaves out the context of how Tulsa was created, what drove it socially, economically, and how this massacre came about. And the massacre, as I'll try to explain, is linked to Tulsa's history as a fast-growing boomtown and as a city that is uniquely at the conjuncture point in the center of the American continent, at the conjuncture of the North, the South, and the West, and also, socially speaking, at the conjuncture of white, black, and Indian populations. For a lot of its history, Tulsa has been a uniquely tri-racial city. And so in a lot of ways, although it's not the biggest city in America by far, it can be seen as a kind of American microcosm, exemplifying America's history of rapid expansion driven by the frontier, by dispossession of Native Americans, by natural resource extraction, and by industry. In these ways, it can be seen as typical or exemplary, but it's even an extreme example in a lot of ways of the speed, the dynamism, and the instability of the American interior. So if we look at this bigger context of the history of Tulsa, it shows us the ways that the Indian roots and foundations of American civilization are very significant, and how racism takes place in a more complex environment than just white versus black. And it also shows the significance of progressivism and World War I, and the sort of atmosphere of fear and paranoia that have been involved in critical moments like World War I that shaped an American ideology or a sense of an American society or identity. So another critical way that Tulsa is unique is that it is probably, as far as I can see, the biggest city in the United States that did not begin in situ, but rather began somewhere else and then was moved to its present-day site. So how did that happen? Well, Tulsa actually has its beginnings several hundred miles to the east in what's today Alabama. It began as a Creek Indian town called Tallahassee on the Tallapoosa River in what's now eastern Alabama. The name Tallahassee is a Muscogean phrase that means the old town. So it's not surprising that this phrase has also been applied to another city you may have heard of in Florida. 
And this village called Tallahassee on the Tallapoosa River existed at least as early as the 1500s. And we know because it was visited by Hernando de Soto's expedition that went through the southeastern part of North America, and they recorded encountering this town in 1541. And it seems that from this early age, Tallahassee was a town built mainly of timber and adobe, with buildings and longhouses arranged around a central courtyard. And in this courtyard, ceremonies, trade, diplomatic relations and receptions would be held. And usually there would be a sacred fire lit and maintained in this central court. And around it, there were specific buildings dedicated to public uses or to the residences of particular clans, and also one designated for unmarried young men. Outside of the town, the surrounding agricultural lands were owned communally by the tribe, but were lent or leased out to particular clans who would be tasked with farming these lands and supplying food to the town. Tallahassee was part of the larger Creek Nation that occupied a larger section of what's now Alabama. And the Creek Nation was governed basically as a loose confederation of autonomous towns and villages. And each village which would have its own clan leaders and elders and a class of warriors who were understood to have some voice in the governance of the town. But the Creek Nation also did have a supreme council and a supreme chief, but they had very little power. They mainly just acted as intermediaries, managing relations among the different Creek towns, and also diplomatic relations with other tribes and nations. Nonetheless, that being said, it seems that Tallahassee did have some sort of preeminence, and we know that the DeSoto expedition perceived the town as being particularly important and exerting influence over other villages in the area. So Tallahassee, it seems, persisted in this site in eastern Alabama for 200-250 years, slowly evolving and adapting to changing conditions. And the biggest, most dramatic change that they saw, of course, was the encroachment and closer arrival of Anglo-American colonists into their sphere of influence and increasing contacts and pressure for trade and land from these Anglo-Americans. And many Creeks saw a lot of benefit from trade and from the adoption of some European customs and lifeways. You know, not only basic technologies like iron tools and horses, but also things like writing and military organization. And over time, through the 18th and early 19th centuries, there also was some intermarriage between Creeks and European Americans. So the, the two societies started to blend. And in this sort of process of give and take and negotiation over how much to adapt to European lifeways, one element in this was slavery. And several tribes and nations in the Southeast did practice slavery and saw this as one of the ways of being more modern and assimilated into the American civilization. But others eschewed this and saw it as, as foreign. So this process of assimilation and accommodation through the 17 and early 1800s, it led to splits and fractures 
where some hardliners would try to keep out foreigners and try to maintain traditions uncorrupted by European and Euro-American lifeways. And increasingly, the Creek were split into two parties that disagreed over how best to survive and face up to this increasing encroachment and pressure from the East, whether to try to accommodate and work out a modus vivendi to coexist with the United States, as it was by the 1800s, or by resisting and drawing a firm line. And this split in the Creek Nation more or less corresponded to a geographic split between the so-called Lower Creek tribes, who were further to the east in what's now Georgia, as opposed to the Upper Creeks in the western areas in what's now Alabama. And generally speaking, the Upper Creeks were more purist and more opposed to assimilation. And Tallahassee, which we've been talking about, was a major town of the Upper Creeks, and it tended to be more resistant to change and assimilation. But even in Tallahassee, there was tension and disagreement over how much contact or how much intermarriage to allow with the European Americans. And a group of particularly militant hardliners in Tallahassee even split off and formed a separate village called Lochapoca. So you can see a kind of spectrum forming between more accommodationist creeks to the east, to Tallahassee in the Upper Creek area, and then especially militant groups like the Lochapoca. And these tensions and conflicts among the creeks came to a head starting in 1825 in fights over the so-called Treaty of Indian Springs. And this was a treaty that was negotiated between the James Monroe administration and the Creek chief William McIntosh, whose main base of power was among the lower creeks. And this Treaty of Indian Springs allowed for a land exchange, basically saying the United States, if the, if the creeks agree to cede sovereignty over most of their territory to the United States, in return, they would get other territories equally rich and valuable to the west, west of the Mississippi, where their sovereignty would be respected and they would no longer be encroached upon by Americans. So Lower Creeks ratified this treaty, but the Upper Creeks rejected it. And further, they made a constitutional argument that William McIntosh had overstepped his authority and even committed treason against the Creek Nation because a treaty like this could not be ratified without the consultation and approval of the various towns and villages. So this led to William McIntosh, while he was campaigning, trying to get compliance with this treaty, it led to William McIntosh being taken prisoner and executed by a council of Upper Creeks in Tallahassee. So the treaty basically failed. And afterwards, the John Quincy Adams administration, which succeeded the Monroe administration, renegotiated a new set of agreements. And they agreed to make much larger payouts to the lower creeks in return for them emigrating to the west and ceding their territory. And also they gave consent to allow the upper creeks to remain in place at least for the time being. 
maybe not in perpetuity, but at least for the foreseeable future. And so they remained there for several more years until the John Quincy Adams administration was replaced by the Jackson administration. And Jackson, of course, was a frontiersman, an expansionist, and he resolved on forcing the not only the Creeks, but all of the so-called five civilized tribes in the southeast, forcing all of them out of their lands in exchange for other lands west of the Mississippi for recognition of their sovereignty and for promises of leaving them alone. And there were several years of struggle and feuding and occasional fighting between different Indian groups in the Southeast and American settlers who increasingly were given the green light by the federal government to invade westward. And the Tallahassee, not surprisingly, were holdouts. This group resisted for as long as possible, for as as long as any group in the region, against this exchange and removal to the West. They finally agreed to bargain with the Americans and their supporters in 1836, and seeing that their potential allies were all being forced out westward, they finally agreed to an exchange of land and embarked west. The Lochapoca were even more resistant. They rebelled, tried to stop this forced removal, but they were pretty effectively crushed by U.S. militias backed by federal authorities. And so all of the remaining creeks in the area eventually embarked in the summer of 1836 on the so-called Trail of Tears, this long journey on foot, basically being pressed and harassed forward by Americans, where they had very poor supplies, suffered from disease and exposure, and lost much of their people. Nonetheless, in the autumn of 1836, the Tallahassee Creeks finally arrived in so-called Indian Territory, a large section of the southern prairies that the United States authorities had set aside as sovereign territory that would be ceded to these Indian tribes. So they arrived in the autumn of 1836, having lost about 40% of their population over the previous six years of fighting and journeying. They picked out a site on the banks of the Arkansas River in the northeastern area of the Indian Territory. And once there, they set up camp and used wood that they had carried with them all the way from Alabama to light another sacred fire. And in so doing, they ceremonially refounded the town of Tallahassee. And they more or less recreated the same sort of geography and social structure that they had known, in that they had assiduously tried to preserve through the years. They recreated the arrangement of buildings around a central square with communal houses and with broader farmlands and pasture lands held in common by the tribe, but assigned to different families and clans to cultivate. Now, it may have been the hope of some traditionalists that they now would be able to finally sever these ties and isolate themselves from American influences, but as it happened, right from the beginning, they were thrown back into the same sort of situation of having to negotiate how much to make contact and create relationships with Americans and how much 
to assimilate. So the Indians who had resettled themselves in the new Tallahassee site had very limited supplies. They had almost nothing with them when they arrived there. And so right from the beginning, they had to trade with American outposts, particularly at the nearby Fort Gibson, and obtain things like seed and tools and horses and so forth. And so commercial interdependence between the American military outposts and the Creeks started almost right from the beginning. And just a few years after the refounding of the town in 1836, missionism, Christian missionism, also arrived. So in 1841, the Presbyterian Board of Home Missions dispatched a team to Indian country with the aim of trying to evangelize the Creeks. Now, perhaps not surprisingly, they didn't get a very warm reception, and there was a lot of resistance and negotiation, particularly with their commercial partners, over whether to allow these missionaries into their territory and on what terms. And in 1847, the Creek Nation finally allowed this Board of Home Missions to set up a mission site outside of the town, sort of at what they considered a fair distance, and with certain restrictions on how many Americans could come in, when and where and how they could preach, and so forth. And there was a lot of skepticism and hostility among the Creeks, who, remember, for so much of their history, had been trying to hold off a foreign influence. However, a few years later, in 1850, the missionaries opened a school, something that some of the Creeks found possibly useful or promising. And this school taught math, literacy, and then within a few years had faculty able to teach liberal arts, various languages, geography, and so forth. And they taught both boys and girls. And many of the children of the Creek, by attending this school, became bilingual and hence they became a conduit of exchange between the Creek Nation and the entire outside world, including the United States. And some did convert. It was not quick, it was, it was gradual and piecemeal, but Christianity did make increasing inroads in the Creek Nation. So partly thanks to this missionism, gradual influence from Anglo-America did creep in, and the Presbyterian Church continued to be strong. It had a, a strong head start, and it was, for generations, the biggest, most influential Christian church in Creek territory. The Creek also did allow some traders and merchants to come in to their territory, even into the town of Tallahassee, rather than just having to trade ac across a long distance. You know, as long as the Creeks only traded with outposts like Fort Gibson, then the strain and the cost of travel was entirely on them. So they found it to be to their advantage to allow some traders to set up shop and conduct trade within their territory and within their village. But it was strictly limited. The Creeks maintained the right to control and limit migration into their territory. Traders had to have permits, basically like visas, in order to stay, and, and licenses to be allowed to conduct trade. And with time, there also was some intermarriage, and there were the beginnings in the mid-1800s, the beginnings of a mixed population of people who had ancestry and ties on both sides, Anglo-America and the Creek Nation. And so naturally, there was a recurring split between accommodationists and hardliners and this sort of continuing controversy over how much to assimilate. This evolution and adjustment by the Creek Nation was then dramatically disrupted by the Civil War. 
when the Civil War broke out, Indian territory was still technically sovereign and independent from the United States. But clearly the Americans had a lot of power, a lot of interest in the territory, and both sides were concerned to see if they could get support or allies from the Indian nations. So the Indian territory was really split. And different tribes, different villages took different sides, largely based on which side they thought was more likely to win, and hence which side was better to cast their fortunes with. And Tallahassee sided with the North, or the Union. For one thing, the federal government controlled the nearby forts, which were serious bases of power and trading sites. The Tallahassee also had very few slaves as compared to other tribes. So another factor was if your tribe's economy was more entwined in slavery, you were more likely to want to see a Confederate victory. And the Tallahassee were much less enmeshed in a slave economy than other tribes were. And they simply estimated that the Union was more likely to win. They had more people, more industrial strength, and so on. So they engaged in small skirmishes and confrontations with Confederate supporters. Tallahassee was repeatedly attacked and raided, and most of the people actually fled and withdrew northward to Kansas, which was a Union state. And that's where a lot of the tribe actually waited out the war. And after the war was over, they then migrated back down and repopulated Tallahassee. And they might have reasonably expected to reap some sort of political or economic rewards from having picked the winning side. But that is not what happened. In the following year, 1866, the federal authorities summoned the elders and chiefs of various tribes around Indian territory and announced to them that they were revoking all of the treaties and agreements that they had made, ceding territory and sovereignty to the Indian nations, on the grounds that some of them had sided with the Confederacy, and hence, in their view, that violated and voided these various treaties. And so the newly triumphant Union forces basically forced these tribes to renegotiate these treaties, even as some of them you know, protested that they had supported the Union. Nonetheless, they had to renegotiate, and they forced the Creeks and others like them to accept the imposition of U.S. courts in Indian territory, which in effect created a new power, a new sort of layer of sovereignty, where if there were disputes or rebellions within these Indian nations, the grieved parties could turn to these U.S. courts. So it really undermined the supposed independence of the Creeks and other nations like them. And the U.S. also asserted police power, the power to intervene and send in militias and occupy Indian territory if they perceived any sort of violation of proper relations with these nations. So their sovereignty and the idea that they could maintain their isolation in Indian territory was blown apart. And the Creeks had to decide how to respond to this. And once again, there was disagreement and division over whether to kind of hold the line on encroachment. But that was basically a failed strategy at this point. So the more assimilationist side won the argument and insisted that the Creek should reorganize and adopt certain governing strategies of the United States in order to better maintain their independence and sovereignty. 
And the following year in 1867, the Creek Nation adopted a new constitution, which in a lot of ways mimicked the U.S. federal constitution with a bicameral legislature, and they called them the, the upper house was called the House of Kings and the lower house the House of Warriors. And they adopted a written law code, which would replace the older system of basically traditional orally propagated customs and decrees from the leaders of the nation. So they adopted a written law code in a lot of ways similar to English common law. And the new constitution also provided for the nation to allow trade and even property ownership by immigrants if they had proper permits and licenses. Now, it happens that this constitutional reform in the Creek Nation came just in time for the beginning of a new economic boom. And the first big economic boom in the Tulsa area was cattle. So around 1870, cowboys driving cattle began appearing and crossing through the Creek Nation territory in Indian Territory. And most of these cowboys were from Texas, and they were driving herds of cattle northward to reach rail termini in cities in the upper Midwest, places like Kansas City and Omaha, where they could be sold at enormous profits and then shipped on railroads eastward, mostly to the enormous slaughterhouse and meatpacking complex of Chicago. And these cowboys driving herds of cattle caused damage and wear to the agricultural lands and the hunting and fishing grounds around the Creek Nation. And this led to conflicts over land use and the right to pass through this territory. However, fairly quickly, some landowners around the Creek Territory started to see a possible advantage where this situation could be monetized. And some of them, particularly wealthier leading families, started to cordon off their properties with fencing or wire, and then sell the rights to graze and pen cattle in these tracts of land. So it could be worked out into a mutually beneficial relationship. And this led not only to fees for grazing and penning of cattle, but also it led to cowboys staying over in the town of Tallahassee, patronizing businesses there like shops or inns. This led very soon to the creation of the first hotel, which was called Tulsa House, and that started off as simply a tent in which cowboys and their assistants could take shelter for a night or two, but then was soon replaced by a timber building. And furthermore, cattlemen, so wealthier, successful cowboys or people who owned multiple ranches in and around Texas, started to buy tracts of land and build homes and sometimes live much of the year in and around Tallahassee. And so gradually a, in a magnate class started to emerge around the area, some of whom were local indigenous people of Creek extraction, and some of whom were outsiders of Anglo-American, particularly Texan backgrounds. And some of these people started to intermarry and create a racially mixed class. And there are very wealthy, powerful magnate families around Tallahassee that emerged that were of largely Creek ancestry, such as the Dohertys and especially the Perrymans. 
And it was also in this period in the 1870s that the name evolved. So it seems that people coming up from Texas with something of a southern drawl started to shorten the name Tallahassee to Tulsi and then to Tulsa. So by 1880 or so, this was becoming a somewhat common new name for the town, Tulsa, although some traditionalist Creeks did not accept that change. The cattle boom then really took off and transformed this Indian village into a new frontier town with the first rail connection in 1882. So initially in the 1870s, Tulsa had simply been a way station or a stopover on the way to other cities that had rail connections to Chicago, particularly Kansas City. But in 1882, the first rail spoke to Tulsa was created, and then a station was quickly built that could handle freight and passenger traffic. And this one then was followed by others over the course of the 1880s, so that although Tulsa was still really a small town of probably no more than a thousand or so people, it started to become a regional hub of trade and travel around Indian territory. And it became a new terminus for these cattle herders moving cattle north from Texas and the southwest. So in the 1880s, you started to see the really dramatic effects of rapid economic boom. There was prosperity, cattle fortunes were made for this magnate class, and also good wages were paid for thousands of workers who could work in transport, construction, food service, hospitality, and so on. But the town was perceived by many as unstable and chaotic. It grew largely unplanned. The streets were sort of chaotic. There were animals wandering around in and out of town. And there was an effort more and more, especially by wealthy magnates, to try to stabilize the town with new institutions and businesses. The first bank was opened in 1889, which also initially began simply from a tent before it was then transferred into a permanent building. And the bank was a huge improvement because previously small businesses like taverns and shops had simply kept their cash in safes within their own buildings. And these provided great targets for robbers and bandits. So it was really an improvement in security once a bank began in 1889. The population of the town mushroomed with all kinds of workers and business people coming in. The housing where they lived was largely makeshift with minimal planning, no safety standards. There was poor sanitation, no sewage. As I said, animals wandering around. And of course, like all kinds of frontier towns that we think of from the 19th century, there was also colorful nightlife, saloons, drinking, music, and a lot of crime. It was quite dangerous, especially at night. And you can already see here in the 1880s, in this sort of frontier cattle town era, the beginning of a theme, a situation that would continue persistently through most of Tulsa's history, which is in a tremendous power vacuum. The city government was very small and weak. Different office holders, even like sheriffs, would frequently come and go. The political system was very volatile as the town grew rapidly and the population was always changing. It was really impossible for elected or official leaders to secure a governing base and a governing coalition. So politics was disorderly, and the city government had very little control over the development of the town. 
And this power vacuum was filled mainly by voluntarism. That is, projects and goals that were set by unofficial, self-organized civic groups. Groups like churches, business associations, professional clubs, and so on. And you can see a lot of these self-organized civic or quasi-civic groups springing up quickly in the late 1880s and the 1890s. There were new churches. The Presbyterian Church expanded, opened new buildings within the town, which hadn't previously been allowed. Also, two Methodist churches formed in 1888 and 1895. A Masonic Lodge formed in 1893. And also all kinds of civic philanthropic groups like the Library Association, organized mainly among women, that founded the first library in Tulsa. But that was a completely private philanthropic organization. No, there also was the rapid creation of schools, a schooling system. So there had already been for a long time the Presbyterian Mission School, going back to 1850. But then as the town grew and became more prosperous, the Creek Nation formed its first private neighborhood school in 1880. And this was open only to Creek Indian children. And partly because of frustration and resentment on the part of the white immigrants into Tulsa, the Presbyterian Mission opened another school in the town that was open to both Indian and white children in 1884. And while this sort of system of grade schools teaching literacy and basic liberal arts was still growing, the philanthropists in town actually founded, set aside a piece of property and founded Tulsa University in 1894. So while this is still (laughs) really a small developing frontier town in Indian territory, it already has the beginning of a university. And these voluntaristic, self-organized organizations had certain advantages. They could be very fast-moving and flexible. They didn't have a lot of red tape that comes with dealing with uh, an elected government. But they also could be very biased. They tended to be composed of wealthy people. They were elite-controlled. And they often were simply inadequate. They didn't have the kind of powers and authorities needed to really meet the needs of a growing town. And for one thing, very importantly, these philanthropic groups could not exercise police power. They couldn't arrest people. They couldn't punish crime. There was a sheriff's office in Tulsa, but it was small, underfunded, and really overwhelmed by the activity and the crime going on. There was no court or courthouse in Tulsa. And if someone wanted to report a crime, they actually had to get on the train and take a long two-leg train ride to another town in order to reach federal authorities and report the crime. So there was all kinds of what people perceived as chaos, disorder in the town, and it was a base for a lot of criminals and outlaws who wanted to remain just beyond the reach of federal authorities. And so the town often unofficially harbored a lot of these bandits and outlaws because they couldn't really fight them off effectively. They made a tacit agreement where they could stay in Tulsa and be tolerated as long as their predations took place outside the town in other parts of Indian territory. So it was becoming something of a nest of criminals. So in the later years of this 
cattle frontier boomtown period, a political takeover took place, where basically the white American immigrants into Tulsa seized control of the town and the Creek Nation territory. So in 1887, the U.S. Congress passed the Dawes Act, which effectively revoked the sovereignty that the U.S. had previously recognized of all Indian nations in their territory. They demoted Indians to wards of the federal government, who then would be pressured through laws and policies to assimilate and adopt Anglo-American lifestyles. And one of the effects of the Dawes Act was that the Creeks, like all Indian nations, lost control over immigration into their territory. They no longer could control who lived in their lands. So the zone of most of what we now call Oklahoma, that was still technically legally Indian territory. That's how it was designated. But for all intents and purposes, it really was now under U.S. administration, and the tribes there had no actual sovereignty. And furthermore, the western area, basically from what's now Oklahoma City westward, was split off into a so-called Oklahoma Territory in 1890. So you now have these two so-called twin territories of Indian Territory and Oklahoma Territory, but both of them now really are administered by the U.S. federal government. And the lands in these territories could then be sold off if the federal government perceived the Indian nations as obstructing progress and civilization. If they tried to hold on to control of their lands, the federal authorities could simply seize it from them and sell it to American settlers. And this then led the way from 1890 onward to a series of rapid mass sell-offs where federal authorities would set up literal races and line up you know, eager, pioneering colonists and fire off a gun and allow them to rush into tracts of territory and stake out parcels of land that they wanted to claim and purchase. So in this way, masses of, of territory around Tulsa were quickly sold off and there was a huge influx of white farmers and ranchers, as well as migrants into the town of Tulsa. And this process culminated finally in 1898, when the federal government forced the tribe to sell off the core land in and around the town of Tulsa itself. So these crucial territories that had been considered the communal property of the town were sold off to new owners and developers. And since the sovereignty of the tribe had now been basically reduced to a dead letter, the residents then incorporated a city. So now for the first time, Tulsa was incorporated as a town with its own elected government, completely separate and apart from the Creek Nation. So now it happens once again, just as the reorganization of the Creek Nation in 1867 happened to open the door then to the cattle boom. Likewise, this new incorporation of the town of Tulsa along American lines in 1898 paved the way almost immediately for the next big economic boom, which was oil. So the oil era in Tulsa began just after the turn of the century. And it was begun mainly by two major discoveries of oil in nearby lands. 
The first one was in 1901. So in June 1901, prospectors who were drilling on the land belonging to a farmer named Ida Glenn, basically northwest of Tulsa, were able to tap in and a gusher erupted on their drilling tower. And they found that this source of oil was part of a large, continuous underground reservoir, which came to be called the Glen Pool. So for many years, various prospectors, builders, oil men of all sorts were able to make their fortunes basically extracting this enormous reserve of oil from the Glen Pool. But that started running out year by year. And it was followed then by another even bigger discovery in the 1910s. So 10 years later in 1911, a large group of investors who had pooled a lot of money and resources started secretly sending out teams to explore an area southwest of Tulsa. And they tapped into very deep reserves in an area called the Cushing Field. And the total amount of oil in the Cushing Field was a lot larger than the Glen Pool, but it was deeper and it was more scattered. It wasn't as concentrated in one big sort of underground lake. And so it had to be gradually excavated over many years with tremendous amounts of investment and labor. And so this made Tulsa more and more into a major oil center for several decades, where money was made not only by these few businessmen who happened to strike it rich, but also by all kinds of engineers, chemists, and workers of all sorts. And the oil business was, of course, enormously lucrative. Petroleum was becoming very important to transport and construction. But compared to the cattle industry, it was much more unstable. So whereas you could be fairly sure and, you know, check up on your prices and know that if you have a herd of cattle in Texas, it'll be worth X amount if you manage to get it to Tulsa or Omaha. In the oil business, there was much more uncertainty. It involved huge risks. A lot of prospecting operations could fail. There also were dramatic price fluctuations. So even if you did reach oil, the value might be less than you anticipated. And so most oil operations in this area around Tulsa in northeastern Indian Territory was started by small makeshift firms with often just a few partners who occasionally were able to make it rich, but most of them simply folded without getting very far. But then once the industry was more on its feet and it was more clear where the big reserves and resources were, then larger companies started to move in and to buy up lands, buy up prospecting rights, and buy out a lot of these smaller firms. A big example was Gulf, the Gulf Oil Company, which was based mainly in Texas, but sort of formed like a second branch in Tulsa. And then others were created in Tulsa, such as the Mid-Continent Petroleum Company, which was organized by businessmen who met in a hotel in Tulsa. And more and more, it seems that lucrative businesses simply began by informal contacts happening face-to-face -face in these taverns and hotels that were springing up in Tulsa. Now, by about 1915, Tulsa was a major center of the central United States, and it was arguably the oil capital of the country. And it's important to know, although Tulsa was reasonably close to these important oil strikes like the Glen Pool, it was not natural or automatic that Tulsa would be the boomtown and become the main center of the industry. 
that was the result of intentional and aggressive action that Tulsans took to outcompete other towns in the area. So when these strikes began, Tulsa was not the largest town. It was still a small town of just a few thousand. And it was smaller than other nearby towns like Bartlesville and Muskogee. But Tulsa overtook them because of a concerted and historic booster campaign, mainly led by the Commercial Club, another one of these voluntaristic organizations that sprang up. And the Commercial Club was founded in 1902, and it organized together the elite of industrialists, big investors, and lawyers. And they pooled enormous amounts of money and also real estate, which was crucial, around Tulsa in order to facilitate new industrial ventures like oil refineries. And the first oil refinery in Tulsa, although it didn't last very long, it was actually created by the commercial club, not by one private company or investor, not by a public organ, but by this club. And more importantly, the commercial club undertook massive promotional campaigns to attract attention and money to Tulsa. They published booklets and brochures boasting about Tulsa. They funded three train tours in 1903, 1905, and 1907, where train cars carrying up to 100 musicians and performers and business promoters and hucksters of all sorts would go touring around the country from city to city and ending up in Washington at the Capitol. It happens that the second of these tours in 1905 included as their sort of star entertainer, Will Rogers, who would later become famous as sort of the performing cowboy. And these tours successfully built up buzz and drummed up investment and brought more migrants into Tulsa. And they encouraged mobile businesses like dry goods stores or restaurants to actually decamp from other cities to Tulsa on the grounds that it was fast growing and there would be tremendous windfalls. They also undertook pressure campaigns to bring in crucial infrastructure into Tulsa, including pipelines and train lines. And a lot of this they did by hosting and feting important dignitaries if they were coming anywhere into the area, into Indian territory. And their sort of signature was to hold a banquet and serve beef barbecued on an open gas well. So sort of symbolically combining these two star industries of cattle and oil and gas. They also gave out what they called bonuses, which were more or less just legal bribes to these businessmen to bring this infrastructure into Tulsa. And a very important example early on was in 1903, when new sources of oil were struck in Red Fork, an area significantly far to the southwest of Tulsa. And the Midland Valley Railroad Company wanted to take advantage of the profit from this new, this new oil discovery by building a railroad through the town of Sepulpa, which is close to Red Fork. But the commercial club wouldn't accept this, and they went out and intercepted the head of this railway of the Midland Valley Railroad Company and offered him a $15,000 bonus, in quotation marks, if he would build instead through Tulsa. This sort of aggressive action was a huge factor in Tulsa becoming the transport hub of the whole region and then growing larger and overtaking rivals like Muskogee and Bartlesville. And so by 1910, it was coming to be called the oil capital, and it was growing exponentially. 
So according to a federal census, which may be an undercount, but nonetheless, according to the federal census of 1900, the population of Tulsa was 1,390. So really, although it was bustling and active, just a small town. Then seven years later, when Indian Territory was admitted to the Union as the new state of Oklahoma, another census was carried out and the population was 7,300. So it had multiplied several times over just in those seven years. And then three years after that, in 1910, the population was 18,200. So it more than doubled just between 1907 and 1910. Really mind-boggling and unmanageable growth. And this massive multiplying population was complex. It was changing every year. And it was tri-racial. And you can see something of the different character of the classes of Tulsa as it grew into a prosperous city. There was a mixed elite that was largely white, but also with many Indian and mixed blood families. And the business success brought in, of course, new migrants from other parts of the country. But particularly in this booming era from about 1880 to 1915, the migrants who came in with some money, who became investors, business people, who formed this new upper class, they tended to be mostly Yankee Protestant from the Northeast and Upper Midwest of the country, particularly Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Illinois. And that set Tulsa a bit apart from other towns in the region, which had more people from the South and from Texas. And as the town grew, the upper class did become more white, but again, it still had some Indian and mixed blood elements in it too. As for the working class, the masses of people who came to work on the railroads or in the hotels or the refineries, they also came from various areas and they were also mixed white and Afro-American. And they came from the Midwest, the South and Texas, they tended to be more white, but also a significant number of black Americans. And some of those then, those African Americans achieved prosperity in ways that might not have been possible for them on the East Coast or the Southeast. And many new small businesses were opened up in this new kind of booming consumer economy, businesses like hotels, restaurants, barber shops, grocery stores, and some of them were started by black entrepreneurs. So this was becoming a significant presence in the town. And so perhaps not surprisingly, there was a racist reaction, and a lot of the white residents of Tulsa demanded segregation and would not accept blacks in their social institutions, their social clubs, or in buildings or businesses that they owned. And so segregation quickly sprang up, and a distinct African-American neighborhood formed basically north of downtown Tulsa in the area called Greenwood. And a lot of the businesses along Greenwood Avenue that sort of defined this neighborhood were Black-owned, and so it sometimes was called Black Wall Street. Although that can be misunderstood, it's not as if this was a really rich upper class. It's not as if it had finance institutions like you'd see on a main street in a major city like Chicago or San Francisco. But it was an area of largely African-American business, and that distinguished it and made it something remarkable in the region. 
So as the city grew, there continued to be efforts to create better infrastructure and new civic institutions. The school system grew, the town took over schools from private organizations and made them public tax-supported institutions. These schools were segregated, so there were separate schools set up for black children apart from the larger schools, which were for white and Indian children. And the voters approved many bonds to support these schools and particularly to build two large high schools, which became fairly well-staffed and well-run and among the best schools in the general southwestern area of the United States. They undertook street paving, new lighting, a system of streetcars, both in the existing downtown and extending into new, fast-growing residential neighborhoods. The university was enlarged, also with support from public money. And finally, as the sort of culmination of this period of new infrastructural development, an airport was created, and it opened among the earliest of any in the nation in 1919, and the Tulsa Municipal Airport had lit runways so that it could allow for nighttime flights and landings and takeoffs, and it quickly became the second largest city airport in the whole country. So in a lot of ways, this drive for development and improvement all through what we now call the progressive era in the early 1900s and 1910s, it had a a big impact and a lot of successes, but there were also tremendous problems in the city that were not effectively solved by volunteerism or pooling of resources. One was the continuing crime. There was a lot of robbery and theft and petty assaults. Main Street was still seen as a kind of wild west with saloons and gambling dens. Also housing. The housing really couldn't keep up with the fast-growing population. A lot of it was shoddy, unsanitary, and highly overpriced because there was so much demand. The water supply was weak and unreliable. The city basically just relied upon wells drilled by private companies that then would sell water to the city system. But this was unreliable, inadequate. A lot of bottled water had to be brought in and sold to consumers in Tulsa. And a lot of critical services were just really shoddy and unreliable because they were not undertaken by city agencies accountable to the public, but rather they were done through private for-profit contractors who often cut corners and sort of, you know, fly-by-night operations. For example, the streetcar lines were really unreliable. And also, as I said, the water supply. And a lot of this dysfunction and inadequacy of certain basic services derives from the political situation and the the political instability. So Tulsa was really a, a partisan battleground. There was a strong Republican presence in Tulsa, especially naturally deriving from the African American population and the strong Yankee Protestant wing of white immigrants to the town. There were influential newspapers on both sides, favoring the Republican and Democratic parties, and there were hotly contested elections, with power often switching back and forth between the different parties. And this was really unique in Oklahoma. Oklahoma by this time was a state, and it was a strongly Democratic state. So Tulsa was an unusual battleground where there was a significant Republican base as well. But regardless, even as power traded back and forth quickly between these shifting Democratic and Republican coalitions, 
there was a general progressive domination um, among both parties. There were powerful progressive factions who tended to believe in industry, the power of technology, who believed in moral cleanup, fighting against vice and lawlessness. Particularly, the elites tended to disdain the presence of heavy drinking, gambling, prostitution, and so forth that they saw going on in downtown Tulsa. And progressives tended to feel a duty to promote the traditional social order, kind of Yankee, Protestant, American moral virtues, propriety, and among that they included racial separation. So the intermingling fraternization of people of different races, which went on in Tulsa as it did in all kinds of cities around the country, was seen as one of these moral vices that should be clamped down upon. At the same time, progressives were fundamentally also individualistic. They believed in individual self-reliance and in fighting big institutions that threatened individual independence, whether that be overpowerful government and political machines or big corporations or unions. All of these sort of big institutions could be seen as threatening to progressives. So the progressive view of the world, which clearly was strong in Tulsa, is complex and it has tensions in it. Progressives in many ways were conservative, right? They wanted to return to what they saw as an era of individual self-reliance, the virtue of the farmer, the small businessman that had been threatened by the Gilded Age and was squelched by population growth, the, the loss of the frontier, the rise of big trusts and robber barons. And they believed that this individual self-reliance had to be restored through reforms, crusades against sources of collective power and corruption, big businesses and the labor movement. So it may seem strange or contradictory in some ways to us, but progressives were both antitrust and anti-union. So this kind of progressive crusade to improve Tulsa, to clean up Tulsa, and to stamp out these sort of threats to traditional morality and individualism came to a head then in World War I. And World War I led to an upheaval and a sort of upwelling of fervor, patriotic fervor, moralistic fervor in much of the country, but especially in Tulsa for all of these reasons that I've been saying, where Tulsa was a kind of extreme, intense example of these trends and patterns in the country, the war really touched off a particularly strong fervor in Tulsa. And it actually began before the United States even formally entered the war. It started with aggressive recruitment in Tulsa into the armed forces in 1915 and 16, when there were rising tensions and fear of possible war with Mexico. And this was important to the whole Southwest, but especially to Tulsa, where there was a great anxiety to protect oil, the sources of oil, the pipelines, the refineries, this massive, growing, crucial industry that they feared would be threatened by Mexico. And so already in those earlier years of the war, there were mass inductions into the armed forces carried out by the mayor and by businessmen in Tulsa. And these units, then once the U.S. entered the war, these units largely were sent to Europe to serve as ambulance units. Others also became infantry and went into combat on the Western Front. 
entry into the war in 1917 only further intensified this patriotic frenzy. There were massive war bond selling drives, recruitment drives. Children were commandeered to pass out patriotic pamphlets and songbooks to people out in the streets and in churches. There were massive marches and parades, public sing-alongs of patriotic tunes held out in the middle of Main Street. And at one point, the committees raising money for the war effort set up a massive wheel, like a huge roulette wheel, in Main Street and recruited businessmen and civic leaders to give $150 a pop for a chance to spin the wheel, which would give them a chance to win a war bond. So clearly by the height of this movement, it was no longer really about buying war bonds. <laughs> it was just about showing publicly how much you were willing to pour in in terms of money and labor. And in the first fundraising drive in 1917, the federal government set quotas for different communities to try to raise for the war effort. And for Tulsa, they assigned a quota of three and a half million. And the city exceeded it and raised over five million. And ultimately, over the course of the war, Tulsa raised a total of over $34 million. And so Tulsa actually raised the most money per capita of any city in the country. And this effort was cast as a celebration and endorsement of what they called Americanism. There was a sort of mania for Americanism. And along with the enthusiasm for the war, there was a corresponding effort to clean out and eliminate foreign influences, especially German influences, in the city. And speeches and editorials were published railing against un-American elements in the city, like pacifists, who were seen as disloyal, traitorous, sympathetic to the Germans. The city set up a general censor board, which was tasked them with condemning and suppressing bad newspapers, books, articles that were considered unpatriotic or disloyal. And along with this, there also was an intense hostility to unions. So around this time, some unions were starting to try to recruit and organize workers, especially in the oil industry around Tulsa. And the elite of the city saw these as subversive, disloyal. Some of the organizers, radical anarchists, socialists involved in these unions were of German extraction and hence were seen as foreign agents. There was a particularly strong fear of the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, which was a radical anarchist union that was kind of spreading its influence among all kinds of early union efforts throughout the country. And so the leadership of Tulsa was intensely afraid of infiltration by the IWW and of sort of radical anarchist groups more generally. And leaders of Tulsa condemned unions as, quote, organized oppression. And particularly after the takeover, the communist takeover in the Russian Revolution in 1917, which happened right in the middle of the war, the leaders of Tulsa increasingly saw these dangerous elements as Bolshevism. So this became sort of the new watchword for everything that they, that they feared and despised and viewed as un-American. So the sort of frenzy that broke out in Tulsa during the war is 
revealing. It's, it was part of a general patriotic fervor that, of course, overtook much of the country, but it was especially intense in Tulsa, which makes sense considering that Tulsa, again, was a makeshift, fast-moving, largely unstable boomtown. And so there was a lack of traditions, a, a sense of insecurity and anxiety. And you can see this enthusiasm for Americanism throughout the country as sort of an expression of anxiety and uncertainty about exactly what America is. You know, as, as some Europeans have said, no country spends so much time worrying about what it is as America. And you could see a kind of identity crisis. What does it mean to be American? What is the American destiny? Which they could then try to resolve by contrasting it with, with an enemy, an other Germans. And there was intense uh, hatred and fear of Germany and German Americans that swept over much of the country. You know, people gathered together and held bonfires burning the works of Beethoven and Mozart and so on. Now, in Tulsa, there were very few Germans, so that target wasn't really there. But you could see this same sort of process of trying to shore up and maybe paper over insecurities about their American identity by targeting people like pacifists or union organizers and so on. And a lot of this insecurity makes sense when you consider that the sort of progressive worldview that was so powerful in Tulsa had these fundamental tensions and even contradictions between Protestant moralism and individualism. So a lot of this upswelling of enthusiasm, excitement, and also fear, paranoia, was clearly organic, and it grew out of the conditions, of the social conditions of a place like Tulsa. But it also could be used opportunistically, right? So people who controlled organs like presses or churches or big businesses could define Americanism as they wanted. They could sort of direct it to their advantage and, very importantly, understood it and inculcated it as anti-union. It was very hard for anyone to counter this mentality, this message of the pro-war movement when in Tulsa the upper class was so organized and the workers were not at all organized. There was just an enormous imbalance where there were years of civic organizing among the leadership of Tulsa and the working masses were rapidly moving, rapidly immigrating, and totally unorganized. Now, the war ended, of course, in November 1918, but it's significant that in much of the country, including Tulsa, this mood of passion, frenzy, and fear really continued on into the 20s. Significantly, the first Red Scare, which was driven and built around fear of Bolshevism, began in the early months of 1920, directed by the Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer. The Red Scare involved raids where immigrants were often rounded up and deported, uh, presses were shut down, unions were broken up. These raids took place in Tulsa, as in many parts of the country, and furthermore, another leadership committee was set up in the city called the Citizens Committee for the Open Shop, which was specifically designed at discouraging or stopping efforts to unionize workers. And this conflict came to a head then in 1920 when plumbers in the city, who were very important when the city was rapidly growing, new buildings were being built, plumbers started to unionize. 
and there was no strike, but rather the Citizens Committee for the Open Shop, when they found out that this was happening, they responded by halting all construction work in the city, thus putting the plumbers all out of work, as well as many others, creating enormous unemployment and really retarding the economy of the city, to the point that after a few months, the plumbers were forced to relent and give up on their unionizing drive. So for the moment, it seems as if this sort of self-organizing civic voluntarism had succeeded in stopping union inroads into the city. But there was also a continuing problem of just general lawlessness and undirected crime. And this led, in the same year, in 1920, it led to a lynching scandal. So in August 1920, a taxi driver named Homer Nida was hijacked by a group of three people, forced out into the countryside outside of the city, robbed, and then shot in the stomach. He was able to make it to a hospital, and in the hospital, he identified one of his attackers as a young man named Roy Belton, who was 19 years old. Homer Nida then died, and news of the crime shocked the city, The cruelty and the open brazenness of it was very shocking. And then rumors quickly circulated that Belton was going to get out of punishment by pleading insanity. So an angry mob formed one night in front of the jail and courthouse of Tulsa. They were able to break into the jail, seize Roy Belton, take him, drive him to a patch of woods outside of the city, and they lynched him. So this only further compounded, in some people's eyes, it further compounded the shock and consternation of the initial murder. It also was very unusual in that all the parties involved in the initial crime and the lynching were white. Now, I'm sure you probably know that the vast majority of lynching victims in American history have been black, and also Others who have been lynched have tended to belong to some disfavored racial or ethnic group, such as Indians, Sicilians, Mexicans, and in a few cases, Germans or Jews. Well, the lynching of Roy Belton was unusual in that he did not belong to any of those disfavored groups. He was just a white Oklahoman. And the reaction to this lynching was confused and it was split. Some people saw it, of course, as a necessary action to try to keep some kind of law and order and justice while crime ran rampant through the city and sometimes claimed lives. And the incident shows, for one thing, the thin line between voluntarism and vigilantism this sort of self-organization for civic purposes could bleed over into vigilante violence. And among some audiences, it aroused the sense that the city was on the brink of just chaos and anarchy. Now, this atmosphere of fear that had built up through the First World War, the Red Scare, and on into the early 20s, combined together with the racism and the the tension around the social position of African Americans, which also had been shaken up by World War I. So there was a certain amount of tension and anger among black Americans in Tulsa, some of whom had served the country abroad in the First World War. 
and expected a certain degree of respect and dignity for that service that they had rendered to the country. And also some of them had found that they had been treated with more respect and dignity in Europe, in places like France and Belgium, than they were back in their own country. So a lot of African Americans by 1921 were sick and tired of being treated with contempt and being isolated to one part of town. And they were tired of not being protected under the law. And some African Americans saw the lynching of Roy Belton. And the message that they took was if even a white man is not safe from being extrajudicially lynched in Tulsa, then think of how much more threat there is then on them as black men. So in a lot of ways, you can see the, the environment, the atmosphere set the stage for conflict by the middle months of 1921. The city was arguably already a tinderbox, and the tinderbox was ignited beginning on May 31st, 1921, when a young woman who was working as an elevator operator in an office building accused a black man named Dick Rowland of sexually assaulting her while she was operating the elevator. And the city police, there was a small police force by this time, the police arrested Roland and held him in jail awaiting trial. That night, a rumor quickly spread that he was going to be lynched, that a white mob was going to form, break in, and kill him as they had done to Roy Belton the previous year. So two crowds really gathered that night in front of the courthouse. A white crowd that was furious, that feared a possible outbreak of attacks by black men on the white population, and a black crowd that felt that they had to stand guard and protect the jail from being invaded by the white crowd. And these two groups traded taunts and insults, apparently for hours, the sheriff of Tulsa had ensconced himself in the jail trying to protect Dick Rowland from possible attack. And he and a deputy then went out in front of the courthouse and were able to speak to the crowds, calm them down, and persuade them to disperse. And the sheriff then continued to stay for the night in the jailhouse. Nonetheless, rumors persisted and flared up again later in the night that a lynching was going to take place. Arguably, the, the sense on the part of many black people was that they had to prevent this injustice, they had to stand up for themselves, and they had the confidence to do so because some of them had served in combat already in the war. Whereas certain white Tulsans, on the other hand, felt that this was a signal of the beginning of a mass black uprising and that they were going to, inspired by, by Bolshevism and anarchism, they were going to rise up and destroy the town. So both sides started to break into and raid stores with guns and ammunition and to arm themselves and self-organize. And the situation quickly spiraled out of control. The two groups started to gather again with weapons in front of the courthouse and engage in small fights and skirmishes. Somewhere in this process, some police officers of the Tulsa police force joined in egged on, and even deputized members of the white mob, basically encouraging them to attack the black group, supposedly, you know, ostensibly in order to prevent some kind of race uprising. So the situation quickly escalated into a civil battle. 
The white group, which was larger and better armed, was able to push the black fighters away from the courthouse and northward back up into the Greenwood neighborhood. And once there, the black fighters felt that they had to defend this neighborhood and they took up defensive positions, including sniper positions, along the southern edge of the Greenwood neighborhood. So battle lines were drawn, which in a lot of ways was quite reminiscent of battles of the First World War, which you could even see as a kind of echo or spillover of the First World War into Tulsa. The situation escalated. White shooters began to shoot into the neighborhood where they saw blacks in defensive positions. Many also threw Molotov cocktails and burning rags in order to start fires and begin a conflagration of Greenwood. They also wheeled in two machine guns and started to fire into fleeing groups who were retreating from the fires. And many of these black fighters then retreated up into the Greenwood neighborhood and into the Mount Zion Baptist Church, which they had set up as kind of a makeshift fort and arsenal in the middle of Greenwood. So as the white fighters approached, they also uh, torched the church. And as the people in the church started to flee out, some of them were shot. At this point, probably several dozen people had already been killed. More or less, the battle-like confrontation was over. And this gave way then for some of the white rioters to basically go on an arson rampage, burning down and destroying about 35 city blocks of Tulsa. Clearly, dozens of people were killed. There's no authoritative or certain count, but it was almost surely over 100 people killed and many thousands of others left homeless and reduced to internal refugees. So in the following days, as gradually these massive fires were put out or died out, churches offered shelter. Also, the Red Cross set up a station, offered shelter and treatment to victims of the attack. And there was a large outpouring of donations to relieve the victims of the attack and also to begin rebuilding the Greenwood neighborhood. So again, reactions were very split. There were many people who were sympathetic to the white attackers who felt that they had forestalled a, a black uprising. In the aftermath of the riot, the Tulsa Tribune actually published an editorial commenting on who was to blame for the disaster. And they said that, well, most Negroes in Tulsa are not blameworthy and were not involved. And really, the cause was agitation by the IWW and by the black newspaper, the Tulsa Star, which had preached, in their words, so-called equality. But there were many others who were horrified, of course, and saw this as an injustice and an embarrassment to Tulsa and to Oklahoma. The town really became a battleground once again between different factions who viewed the disaster differently. And this is the point, it seems, where the Ku Klux Klan moved in. And the Klan previously had not been a significant presence in Tulsa, partly because Tulsa was not as friendly to them. It was more of a Republican base. But the Klan was attracted to places that they saw as battlegrounds between contending forces, not only between white and black, but between white segregationists and white allies and supporters of African Americans. So they move in aggressively in the later months of 1921, and there starts to be a pattern of nighttime kidnappings and attacks, mainly aimed at intimidating black leaders and spokespersons in the aftermath of the riot and also to 
punish or mete out retribution for petty crimes by black Tulsans. The Klan founded a chapter formally in Tulsa in August 1921, and it quickly gathered at least 1,500 members and then grew by several hundred more over the next couple of years. They sort of came out of the closet and started holding open public marches in Tulsa in April 1922. And basically, 1922 and the earlier half of 1923 were more or less a reign of terror, where the Klan carried out frequent kidnappings, whippings and floggings of African-American captives, and sometimes mutilations, like cutting off one man's ear. And these crimes went on partly because many of the Klan night Riders were themselves police or were friends or family of police officers. So there was no effective police action against them. And the situation came to a head and really culminated in August 1923, when a black boarding house owner named Nate Hanteman was questioned by police for possible drug trafficking in his boarding house, which was not unusual. And then he was released by the police into the hands of two unknown thugs who kidnapped him, bludgeoned him, and basically abandoned him in a farm field outside of Tulsa. He was found and treated, and his wife called into the state government in Oklahoma City, reported the crime, and said that the police were complicit. The police knew what was going on, and they were accomplices in these crimes. So the governor, Jack Walton, was disgusted, and he turned to the leaders of Tulsa and demanded that the perpetrators of the attack on Nate Hanteman be arrested within three days, or else he would declare martial law and move the National Guard into Tulsa. There was no action, no perpetrators were arrested, and so Walton followed through on his threat and sent in the National Guard to take over the offices of the sheriff and the police commissioner in Tulsa. And he set up a special court to investigate and prosecute the Ku Klux Klan. And because this was martial law and a state of emergency, the court could act without having to observe habeas corpus. The city of Tulsa was split about this action. Some did support it. And there were newspapers who expressed support, who saw it as necessary, action against the invisible empire of the Klan. And one of them said, if this is to be a fight between the Klan and the governor, we support the governor. But part of the problem was that the Ku Klux Klan was very powerful in other parts of the state around Oklahoma. So the state legislature, which had a, you know, a lot of Klan members in it, tried to quietly speed up this process and try to bring this state of emergency and martial law to an end as quickly as possible. They were afraid it was setting a bad precedent. And so the governor opposed them and tried to force the legislature to take up the issue of the Klan statewide and set up a similar court in Oklahoma City to combat the Klan. And the legislature refused to do so. They shut down, refused to meet. And so the governor suspended habeas corpus throughout the state and on his own authority began a similar court. The conflict was rapidly escalating. And in November 1923, the legislature impeached and removed Governor Walton from office for violations of habeas corpus. And the state of martial law in Tulsa ended. But nonetheless, the Klan was significantly beaten back and largely retreated from Tulsa after this dramatic confrontation in 1923. 
And afterwards, through the rest of the 1920s, there was a partial pacification and some return of prosperity to Tulsa. New industries other than oil began moving in. The town became a major hub of air travel, sort of uh, capitalizing on its central location in the country, and particularly of freight-carrying air travel, which was largely pioneered through the Tulsa airport. This was the period when the first skyscrapers were built in downtown, and also Greenwood began to be rebuilt in earnest. So by and large, by 1929, it could seem that Tulsa was basically back on track and returning to prosperity and maybe was ready to put the disasters of the early 20s behind it. But of course, the stock market crash of 1929 intervened. And at first, for the first year or so, it seemed as if Tulsa might be unaffected, that the stock market crash was basically an East Coast phenomenon that wouldn't change the core industries in Tulsa. But nonetheless... Over the course of 1930, there was an increasing loss of investment from Eastern capital institutions and a diminishing market and falling prices. And these effects hit in the summer and fall of 1930. Unemployment quickly increased. And this led, of course, to a vicious cycle. As more people became unemployed, there was less revenue in retail businesses and so on. And the local economy started to crash. There was an enormous problem of panhandling, people going broke, unemployed, not able to feed themselves or pay the rent, becoming vagrant, and basically begging for money on the streets. And once this happened, all sorts of civic organizations that had always been strong and numerous and dynamic in Tulsa stepped in and took action. Churches, civic organizations, charities stepped in to try to provide relief. But these efforts were very uncoordinated. A lot of them were inefficient. There was a lot of duplication and waste as different organizations did the same thing. And so leaders recognized that there had to be more of a coordinated effort. So they created a so-called Central Committee of Five, an unofficial committee with delegates, five delegates taken from the Community Fund, the Chamber of Commerce, the City Government, the County Government, and the General Public. And this Committee of Five solicited plans and schemes for how to undertake relief on a large scale. And this was a really new and unusual thing, uh, both you know, for Tulsa, which had never seen this kind of mass poverty and unemployment, and also for the country, where it was, it was just unusual for voluntary groups to try to undertake massive attacks on poverty. So the committee ended up adopting a complex hybrid plan, and it included firstly massive public works, especially on city parks, including the creation of a reservoir in Mohawk Park, which is something the city had always needed. It had always had an inadequate, unreliable water supply. And these massive public works projects would employ thousands of able-bodied men and pay them a reliable wage. And then secondly, because these public works couldn't employ all kinds of people like the elderly or children or, in their view, women, they also would provide direct food relief, which was seen as more efficient than giving out a cash dole. If one gave out cash to the indigent, the unemployed, they would then have to pay private entities like grocery stores for food, and those businesses would then take a cut of profit. So the committee believed it would be more efficient 
to actually buy up foodstuffs cheaply from farms and ranches in the region, which were abundant and where prices were very low, and then move that food into the city, process it, and distribute it directly to people who needed it. And this would cut out the extra cost of the middleman. And in addition, it would employ many more people then in this labor of obtaining, processing, and distributing the food. So the committee built up a massive warehouse in a city park where they could buy up and store grain and hogs. They then would mill the grain into flour and slaughter the hogs. And the committee had a team to actually give out to thousands of people daily rations of potatoes, sweet potatoes, beans and peas, bread and salt pork and other foodstuffs enough for a 2,800 calorie daily diet. And this was a tremendous success and very popular. And the operation was seen as a model and an inspiration for other cities and even foreign countries around the world. And dozens of people visited or wrote in to the Tulsa committee asking them for information and advice about how to set up similar operations in other places. So again, this sort of spirit of civic entrepreneurialism came through in Tulsa. But after a couple of years, of course, the money started running out and the depression continued. And it was just barely saved then by an infusion of cash from first from the state and then on a much larger scale from the federal government with the beginning of the Roosevelt administration and the New Deal. And Tulsa became a big beneficiary of New Deal and WPA projects, such as a new train station, new roadways. And most importantly for Tulsa, the FHA, the Federal Housing Authority, put in a lot of money and labor to build new, safe, adequate housing in the city, which another, again was another important resource that had been lacking in Tulsa. And in particular, these FHA investments really allowed for the rebirth of Greenwood, which had already been starting to recover from the destruction of 1921. So Greenwood it had a thriving business district, of course, it was called the Black Wall Street, but the residential areas had always been very crowded and unsanitary, and the WPA funded uh, a lot of cleanup and rebuilding, as well as new housing, and Greenwood had been class stratified, right? It was not a uniform community. There was a sort of prosperous class of mainly business people, and then a poorer class of workers, and the businesses in Greenwood had largely already bounced back by this point. But for workers, they were still suffering under the lack of good housing. So the FHA really facilitated a renaissance of Greenwood. And the number of African Americans in the city increased by 15% from 1921 to 1938. So after you know the low of the devastation of the racial attack, it really came back and became a significant presence in the city again. And this trend then also continued into World War II, when new housing was built around Tulsa to house troops who were being stationed there before being deployed. And the understanding was that once these troops were, were dispatched out of the city or the war ended, then this housing would be sold off at low, set low prices, mainly aimed at African Americans. Now, nonetheless, of course, with the mass poverty, a lot of small businesses still did suffer. And they suffered, for one thing, not only from a lack of customers, but also a lack of credit. 
there was a massive credit crunch during the Depression. And in the later years of the Depression, small businesses in Tulsa banded together and formed the Tulsa Industrial Corporation, which would provide lines of credit to these businesses instead of banks, which were not helping. So the Tulsa Industrial Corporation helped to make up for the shortfalls, both of financial institutions and of the New Deal. And by 1938 and 39, there was an increasing mood of disillusionment with the Roosevelt administration and the New Deal in Tulsa, a sense that these programs had failed to permanently end the Depression, and it had continued on and in some ways become very intense in 1936-37. And once again, it was largely self-organization, voluntary civic action that started to turn things around by the end of the 30s. And this sort of New Deal consensus that maybe had existed briefly in the mid-30s was broken in part by a massive strike. So the New Deal, the Roosevelt administration, and the new growing unions were all closely tied together. And so the controversy and negative feelings around unions started to come up again and divide Tulsan society again in the late 30s. A tremendous, long-lasting landmark strike that really affected the whole country broke out in Tulsa in 1938. So at that time, oil field workers had, many of them had been organized into an umbrella union, the Oil Workers International Union. And this union made demands for better pay, vacation time, and seniority protections for job security. And they were able to come to agreements with various employers including among them the Mid-Continent Petroleum Company, which was a long-standing major company with wells and pipelines and a refinery in Tulsa. However, the Mid-Continent Petroleum Company ended up pulling out and reneging on the agreement because they refused to accept a clause that called for external arbitration in case of disputes or disagreements under the contract. In this way, the Union and the Mid-Continent came to loggerheads, and the conflict dragged on and finally led to a strike starting in December 1938. Many workers, particularly at the oil refinery, began picketing. They tried to block the way in and out of these industrial plants. Police and National Guard came in and dispersed them with tear gas, which was seen as a major provocation. The National Guard moved in to occupy and protect various industrial sites, physical fights broke out, cases of sabotage by both sides, and also spying and wiretapping, where sympathetic entities in the city government helped to spy on the union and on workers. And eventually the company in 1939 fired 240 of the striking workers, which was against the sort of common understanding under law at that time that employers should not fire strikers. And this further added fuel to the flames, and it added a further grievance to the dispute, where now the union demanded that those fired workers be rehired. And as this process dragged on and no agreement could be reached, workers rioted. There were 15 bombings of pipelines feeding into the refinery, so really aggressive efforts to try to sabotage and shut down the company. And 100 workers were arrested and charged with rioting and suspicion of sabotage, but all of them were acquitted in court. And this process went on for more than a year 
this sort of low-level violence and intractable standoff went on all through 1939 and into 1940. And government authorities became increasingly exasperated with Mid-Continent Petroleum Company for continually refusing any outside mediation or arbitration. And it would repeatedly happen that they would come to some tentative agreement, prepare to enter into a mediation process, and then balk and pull out again. And it's unclear why they kept doing this, but there are certain possibilities. For one thing, the fact that Oklahoma and the country as a whole were very strongly democratic at this time, and unions had become pretty broadly popular. And the company may have been afraid that if they did submit to any sort of arbitration by an Oklahoma labor board or by the NLRB, those bodies would favor the union. And by contrast, Tulsa was turning increasingly Republican again, and there was more and more negative feelings about unions. And they may have felt that they could sort of play on and use public opinion in Tulsa more to their advantage if they avoided referring disputes to these outside bodies. But for whatever reason, eventually the company made a partial truce and the striking workers agreed to go back to work provisionally in March 1940. But the company still continued to fight against rehiring the 240 workers that they had fired. And this dispute continued to drag on all through the war. And the upheaval of this strike encouraged and, and furthered the disillusionment with the 30s and an increasing turn in Tulsa back towards voluntarism and disillusionment with the New Deal, a desire to turn back to reliance on private enterprise and private initiative. And in 1940, Tulsa actually voted 55% for Wendell Wilkie, the Republican, in the presidential election, and less than 45% for Roosevelt, which was very shocking and an enormous aberration, where in In Oklahoma as a whole, Roosevelt got 57% of the vote. It was another Roosevelt landslide. But Tulsa increasingly stood out as more conservative and Republican. And the elites of Tulsa at this point made more of an effort to try to restore public favor and confidence, largely through philanthropy and through civic improvements which could counter the sort of wider mood of resentment against the rich in the country at large. And a lot of wealthy magnates in Tulsa donated fortunes or spent money, in some cases, on art collections that they then opened to the public as sort of gifts to the city. And this includes the Philbrook Museum of Art, which was started by a wealthy magnate in Tulsa and opened in 1939, and the Gilcrease Museum, which is one of the most important collections of Native American art and artifacts in the country. And it was founded by a Tulsa magnate of Creek ancestry and opened to the public in 1943. So after the end of the war, you could say the boom era of Tulsa was clearly over and the city had sort of stabilized, but it continued to be prosperous. It successfully weathered and emerged out of the depression. And there was a general shift in the industries in Tulsa. It ceased to be the main oil capital of the country. The center of the oil industry really moved south to Texas and particularly to Houston, But the oil industry was amply replaced by other new growing industries, especially aerospace. McDonnell Douglas opened enormous offices and plants in Tulsa. 
and they produced parts of commercial airplanes as well as spacecraft for the Apollo and Saturn rockets. And also American Airlines cited its main service and repair plant in Tulsa. And the city continued to be a battleground in various ways. Although it was not as openly chaotic and violent as it had been in the 20s, it continued to be an important battleground. It, there was a partisan balance, power and favor in the city continued to shift back and forth between Democrats and Republicans. There was new innovation and improvement in public services, but often with a conservative overtone. And a big example of that was night school. Tulsa was the first city in the country to open up night schools in the public schools, which would give working people a chance to complete their degrees or learn new skills. But these night schools were very carefully monitored and censored by school authorities and civic groups. And anything that was seen as un-American could be banned or censored. And they often expelled students who wouldn't participate in patriotic ceremonies. So there was this sort of continuing effort, again, like during the First World War, to sort of inculcate Americanism and loyalty. There also were serious divides in Tulsa over racial integration. And schools, of course, were a battleground of that. The first moves to integrate public schools started in 1959, so even later than other places like Little Rock. And while integration did begin, it was undermined by certain rules and policies of the city, such as allowing parents to switch their students at will out of schools into different schools where the majority were of their race. So it was sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card that no white student actually had to go to a majority black school. Also, busing and other measures at integration were often fought and resisted through the 1960s and 70s. And further, majority black schools, especially in the Greenwood area, were often left in decline and then closed rather than renovated, as would happen in white schools. And hence, parents who were more liberal or who wanted to support integration self-organized and demanded that these schools be renovated and remade into, you could say, sort of magnet schools that would be integrated. And in particular, Carver and Washington high schools, which had historically been black, were taken over by these civic groups, renovated and made into racially integrated experimental schools. And coming out of this fight, you know, like in much of the country, Tulsa was, you could say, culturally divided. There was a strong conservative movement that grew through the 1960s and 70s that was largely evangelical. An important leader, a sort of evangelical faith healer and leader of this conservative awakening was Oral Roberts. And Roberts moved to Tulsa and opened Oral Roberts University in Tulsa in 1965. And 13 years later, in 1978, he reported that he had a vision telling him to open a center of healing in Tulsa. And this led then to the so-called New City of Faith Hospital Complex with its own hospital and medical school. And this was a controversial development in the city, partly because there was perceived to already be a glut of hospitals in the Tulsa area. You know, there was a very strong educated population, 
a lot of you know civic organization. There were already ample hospitals. There were even many empty wings and beds in these hospitals. Kind of hard to imagine from today's perspective <laughs> how different things were in the 70s. But Oral Roberts persisted and insisted on opening this hospital and largely justified it by making it a teaching hospital attached to a medical school and making it a sort of regional center serving the wider regional population, not just the city. And in this process, there was a partisan reversal, again, as happened in much of the country. Whereas Tulsa had often been a Republican-leaning town in a Democratic state, it now switched and became a more Democratic-leaning town in a Republican state. Tulsa by this time had very strong service and high-tech industries, which tended to supply a Democratic voting base of white-collar workers. And this new kind of, you could say, liberal or democratic population sponsored neighborhood and cultural revival, largely serving the sort of urban, white-collar, and younger set. And this led particularly to the creation of the Tulsa Arts District, where developers took over warehouses in the sort of disused industrial sections of the city and remade them into art studios, music studios. And it's led to a walkable, dense district with shopping, nightlife, concerts, etc. Again, almost a model for this sort of service industry modern city. And a particular anchor of this Tulsa Arts District is the Woody Guthrie Center, which is a museum and archive holding the papers and records of the famous folk singer Woody Guthrie. It was created in 2013 by the George Kaiser Foundation, which is funded by a billionaire oilman and financier named George Kaiser. A lot of things you can see is ironic about this that I think uh, encapsulates a lot of the irony of modern-day Tulsa. Woody Guthrie had no particular personal connection to Tulsa, although he was from Oklahoma, but the papers and the museum were set up there in Tulsa because this billionaire George Kaiser bought his papers and records and created, sponsored, funded the creation of this Woody Guthrie Center. And you can see then this sort of communist radical, you know, folk artist and folk singer who traveled around gathering music from the poor in the Midwest being memorialized thanks to money from a billionaire who's rich from oil and finance. So in all of these ways, while the race massacre of 100 years ago was an enormous, impactful cataclysm and revealing about American history in general, you can many ways, I think, only understand how it came about if you understand the complexities and the tensions and the ironies of the growth of a boom town and a boom city like Tulsa. So thank you so much for listening. And if you want to hear all of my patron-only materials, including the next History of the United States and 100 Objects, please go to the link in the description and become a Patreon supporter at any level. 